0: I want to tell you all, um, part of me wants to say, forget what you've ever learned about praying. But then there's part of me that says, but no, no, there's some foundation there. There's some good stuff there that you've learned that you know about praying. Part of me wants to say that I feel like we have 2,000 years of church history working against us. But then the other part of me says, no, I love the church and God knows what he's doing. So he's given us this history, and this is part of the whole faith experience and and learning how to follow him. But I'll tell you, when it comes to prayer, there are far too many Christians, and we've talked about this actually quite recently, far too many Christians who are uncomfortable praying. And this is our lifeline. This this is our connection point. And if you're anything like me and you, and you think, well, I just, I like to pray, you know, hands folded, eyes closed, head bowed, and in my head, it takes me three seconds and I'm already off to something else. You know, to, to, to be, maybe some of you are, are better at that than I am, but when it comes to focusing on Jesus and really praying and staying with it, I, I, if I do this, I'm gone. I'm making lunch plans. I'm thinking about the kids' soccer games and what's going to happen next week. And, and, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm like apologizing to Jesus because, oh, sorry, I drifted off. I mean, can you imagine if we did that in real conversation? What that would be like if, if Kyle and I are sitting there talking and I just kind of went, oh, I'm sorry, what, what were you saying? I mean, how would that, you would feel like, who cares about what we're talking about? Clearly, Rick's somewhere else. We don't understand prayer. We have, we have somehow, over the years, all the religion and, and all of the, all the church, we, we have this concept of, of, of this high holy thing. And, and you know what? Prayer is holy, but it's real. And it's genuine, and it's not, I think, a lot of what we've made it. Well, we're going to have some help tonight with this. John Turn your Bibles to John chapter 16, verse 33, and we're going to get into John 17. Please don't panic. On the verses. I know I've given you a lot of verses lately, (laughs) but again, we're going to run them. We're going to run through a lot of them like all at once. I'm giving these to you to go back to if you want to, to refer to. Take out your phone, go click, and you're done. You don't have to worry about it anymore, okay? John 16 33. Jesus says, Remember, this is the night of his betrayal. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, hard times, difficulties, pains, problems, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, stop there. Jesus prayed a lot I think anyone who's asked, anyone who knows, if you've read the Gospels, you know, wow, he's always slipping off and praying. In fact, Mark 1.35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and he was praying there. Luke 5.16, Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke six verse twelve. it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Matthew 14, 23, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So we know that that time it was afternoon. Morning, noon, and night, Jesus prayed. He was constantly in prayer, constantly talking to the Father. And yet what's interesting is we have very little in terms of content going through the Bible. We know he prayed all the time, but, but what did he pray? We just want to hear that. We want to read it. And there's not a whole lot of what we know that he actually said. Turning your Bibles back to Matthew chapter six. Matthew six. And by the way, just throw this out to you. I, I need to keep remin- reminding people we have Bibles in the back. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one, you slip back there at any time. In fact, I would, I would suggest you wait five or 10 minutes so nobody knows that that's why you're going back there. So, you, you know, But we have those for you if you'd like to grab one. So Matthew chapter six, verse nine, Jesus says, pray then in this way and begins this instructive prayer, what we call the Lord's prayer. Maybe you're familiar with it. Pray then in this way, our father who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name. See, I go King James immediately. Holy is your name is what he says. He's just complimenting the father. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus prayed while teaching his disciples. Here's here's how how you do it. Now, another shorter version of the Lord's prayer can be found in Luke chapter 11, verses two through four. John chapter 11, verse 41. We see him praying at the tomb of Lazarus. It tells us that they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes. Note that he raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that, I, that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Does that sound religious and high holy and highfalutin? I knew you heard me, Lord, or Father, but you know they didn't, so I decided to say that out loud. Interesting, when the Greeks asked to see Jesus at the end of his ministry, the final week, John chapter 12, verse 27, he said, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And then in the next verse, four words, Father, glorify your name. That's a prayer. He just prayed. It's like, wow, I thought you had to say so much more. Sometimes a sentence is all you can get out. And sometimes a sentence is all you need. Matthew 26, 39, of course, in Gethsemane, we hear his words as he says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 42, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then, of course, at the cross, Luke 23, 34, maybe you haven't thought of it as a prayer, but it absolutely is a prayer, perhaps the most powerful prayer Jesus ever uttered, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is all Jesus praying. Do you hear anything that sounds religious in this? I, not yet. I haven't heard anything yet. Matthew 27, 46. Also repeated in Mark 15, 34, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But was that a prayer? Or was he reading scripture? Because that's Psalm 21, or 22, verse one, right? Or was it both? Was he praying and quoting scripture and directing people to take a look? In fact, by the way, check it out. You Bible students know this, but Psalm 22, this is an amazing moment on the cross because Jesus quotes a Psalm that describes his crucifixion a thousand years before it happened. Okay, that's huge. Anyway, he's he's praying, he's reading scripture. Finally, the last thing that Jesus prayed before his death, Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit simple words simple words that he just prayed from his heart to the father hey if you struggle with verbalizing prayer listen to Jesus pray like Jesus pray the way Jesus prayed that's why I'm calling this pray like Jesus part one we're not going to get through the whole chapter tonight ain't no way but pray like Jesus. Stop praying like the church. And again, I love the church. But church people, we can get awfully stuffy sometimes. Don't pray like the pastor. Don't pray like someone you've heard on YouTube or on, on radio, if there is such a thing anymore, XM, whatever. Don't pray like you're hearing other people. Pray like Jesus. And by the way, it was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter six, back in verse five, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. You know what the hypocrites do? They pray to be heard. They pray to be heard. They pray to be sure everyone else in the room knows that they're a spiritual person or they keep silent because they know they're not and they don't want anybody else to know they're not, right? When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I love this. When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. That's pagan prayer. Do you realize that? Repetitious, grand and gloriousness. That's Gentile praying because it's all about the look. Don't pray that way. He says, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. So tonight we come to the longest Fullest, richest prayer of Jesus anywhere in the Bible it's a fantastic chapter it takes about three and a half minutes to pray this prayer so even with this even with John 17 it's still just a short prayer that Jesus prays prior to entering into the garden a short prayer but a beautiful prayer and so instructive I read it over and over and over this last week. And as I did so, I came to the conclusion, and I read J. Vernon McGee said this years ago, and I totally agree with him. I feel, he said, wholly and totally inadequate to deal with this prayer. And so do I. And perhaps so do you. So let's ask the Spirit for some help. Jesus, we come to you. And we ask you to do what you promised. That is that your spirit would remind us of all the things that you said. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and understanding to what we're about to read. And that this father would be a blessing to every ear that hears. And would encourage us, but would also, Lord, retrain us to be a people who love our father so much we know how to talk to him. Help us to pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, again, of John 17, Jesus spoke these things. Now, hang on. What things? He, he finishes in verse 33. Oh, he says, these things I have spoken to you. Okay, cool. So, when, so Jesus spoke these things. And if you want to go all the way back, actually, to chapter 14, verse 25, he says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. And he's in the middle of that Thursday night teaching, prior to being arrested and dragged through trials all night long and crucified the next morning. It's on that night, as we've been talking about, he's he's speaking these things to them. He says in John 15 verse 11, "These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full or made full." Down in verse 21 of chapter 15. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. So he's saying the persecution you're going to get, these things. He had talked about these things as well. In chapter 16, verse 1, he says, These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling or as we talked about last week, kept from being offended. Continue on down verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Verse four, but these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may, be rem- may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. What didn't he tell them? These things. <laughs> these things that he's telling them right here and now. Chapter 16, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, literally in Proverbs. But an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in Proverbs, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And then down in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Anyone likes some peace? (laughs) In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said... So he's just finished teaching and now he's gonna pray. And it is a pivotal prayer, not just in the ministry of Jesus, not just in the life of Jesus, this is a pivotal prayer in the age connecting, literally standing between the ages. It's intimately connected to all these things that he had just spoken to them. So now he's going to pray and ask the Lord to bless them in these things and help them remember these things and be with them regarding all these things. He reaches back to do that, but he also is praying forward to the age that is about to unfold. It's like Jesus is standing on the precipice as he begins to pray this prayer. This is what I would call a spiritual fulcrum. It's a hinge point when he prays this prayer. And unlike anything else, again, in the scriptures, he looks back and and talks about where they've been. He he refers back to what he's been teaching that night, but then he looks completely forward to what's about to come that they might be prepared, and he prays that. John 17, this is huge. It makes me wonder, why don't we spend more time In John 17, why don't churches spend more time just sitting in this chapter? And I'll encourage you to do so. We're gonna cover a lot of things tonight and next week, but spend some time in this chapter yourself. Read it back over. Think about what he's really saying and what is he saying directly to you because he's praying for you in this chapter. The 14th century German Lutheran scholar named David Chitraeus, not Petraeus, that's a military guy, David Chitraeus, he was the first one to call this the high priestly prayer. He gave it that designation and it stuck. Ever since then, we have many of us, many churches, many pastors, teachers, scholars, Bible students have referred to John 17 as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I'll tell you why in a second. The 16th century Scottish reformer, John Knox, maybe you've heard the name John Knox, he referred to this prayer as the holy of holies in scripture. This is the inside of the inside of the temple. This is where the presence of God Resides. This is where God meets you. If we're talking about the Holy of Holies, and that's what John Knox said. And as Knox lay dying in 1572, his wife asked him, Where do you want me to read? And he replied, Where I cast my first anchor in the 17th chapter of John. And John Knox entered eternity listening to this prayer John 17. The Bible doesn't label it high priestly or holy of holies, but both of those fit very well. Just looking at the content content of it, the high priest's primary role in Israel was mediator. And this is a mediatorial prayer. This is an intercessory prayer. If there's any intercessory prayer in the Bible, this is the one, this is the big one. And there's a lot of intercession in scripture. But in this, Jesus takes his stand between us and the Father and begins to intercede. So it's very high priestly in nature. And and if you walk it through, and I'm going to go ahead and give you an outline. In fact, we're, we're treating this single chapter like we would normally treat an entire book. I've got to give you all this introduction before we really get into it, which is why we're only doing 11 verses. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for Jesus. He to the Father for himself. In verses 6 through 18, he prays for the disciples immediately, the 11, and perhaps those disciples of his who maybe weren't present right there, but he prays for the disciples. And then in verses 19 through 26, he prays for the church. And that's your outline. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for the church that would come of his disciples. Now, there are those who say, okay, high priestly prayer, I get that. It fits the form and the flow. But Jesus' high priestly ministry really didn't get underway until, until his ascension. You know, that, that his priestly prayers that he prays now actually follow his sacrifice. And thinking uh, like a good Israeli, put on your thinking yarmulkes here and think with me. you, You realize that's what the high priest would do. They would make sacrifice, and then he would go in on Yom Kippur every year annually. He would take the sacrificial blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle them on the Ark of the Covenant. Sacrifice first, and then intercession. So that's a good point. People look at John 17 and say, it's, it's definitely high priestly in form, but the high priestly ministry of Jesus doesn't start until after the sacrifice, after the crucifixion. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. That's high priestly. Uh, Hebrews 7, 25. He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. That's really interesting. He doesn't say he's able to save forever those who, God, who, who draw near to God through faithful church attendance. Not that you're, I mean, I'm glad you're here. Please don't get me wrong. When I say things like that, there's a little voice inside of me that says, Rick, you're just gonna send them out the door and they'll never come back. <laughs> but it's not the religion. It's draw near to God through him. That's how you get saved and it says since he always lives to make intercession for them for who for those who draw near to God through him he's praying for you tonight while we're studying prayer he's praying for you that high priestly ministry of Jesus Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 says therefore holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession Hebrews 4:14 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, and the Hebrew pastor, by the way, is speaking this way because he's talking to Jews. Since we have a great high priest, he's talking to Jewish Christians, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He is our great high priest. He has, to this day, a high priestly ministry, but he was first the spotless sacrifice, I've marveled at that with you before. What an amazing thing. Jesus was not only, or is not only, our high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. He's the only one. Every high priest of Israel offered sacrifice, but they never became the sacrifice themselves. Jesus did. So he's sacrifice, and then he's high priest in his high priestly ministry. John 17 Related to the sacrificial aspect of this, uh, there's an ancient writing out there, and you can write this down or not, but it's called the Didache. The Didache, which means teachings. And around the second century, this this writing that we have most of, the Didache, um, was available and passed around in churches, and it was a devotional-type book. It, It was very seriously considered to be added to the canon of Scripture, except that it wasn't written by someone who immediately knew Jesus, but but that's how helpful it is. So the DDK in chapter 10 of of that manuscript of that work it actually parallels John 17. There's a prayer that parallels John 17 very closely. And it's called the Eucharistic prayer. Eucharistic like eucharist like communion like we just shared. And it's it's interesting because they think because of this DDK and because it, this was back as far as the second century that there were many Christians who at communion read John 17. I saw Jake's eyebrows go up like, oh, hey, great, I'll use that Sunday. <laughs> this, this was the substance then. They would read and literally pray this prayer of Jesus before the celebration of communion. Interesting. However we study it, however we take it, as a sacrificial thanksgiving, uh, you know, as, as a prayer that is, is high priestly in nature, it is the closing prayer of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And it is the opening prayer of his high priestly heavenly ministry. So this prayer is unique in that it's both a benediction and an invocation. Benediction first, because he's closing something out, but then invocation, because he's opening something up. So again, the content of John 17 is gonna be our outline. Jesus prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for his church. If you wanna get clever, and I already did, I'll give you these words. Part one of this study, verses one through five, is the glorification of God. Jesus will glorify both God the Father and call for glory for himself. So it's the glorification of God, verses one through five. And then verses six through 19, the sanctification of the disciples. The sanctification of the disciples, verses six through 19. And then verses 20 through 26, the unification of the church. Glorification, sanctification, unification, that'll help us outline where we're going. Again, we won't get through it all tonight, but let's start with part one, the glorification of God. And again, verse one, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have, glor- or I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory with which, which I had with you before the world was the glorification of God. First off, Notice that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Pray like Jesus. Pray like Jesus. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He didn't bow his head and fold his hands in the humble posture of the Puritans. Not that that's bad. So you know, stay with me. I'm gonna say some things as we go through this, but we learned this kind of praying from our Puritan ancestors, from those who came over to America first to seek freedom of worship. And it was all about focus, and and there was an an intent to it, and I think a very good intent behind it. Fold your hands, man, so the children aren't poking each other and messing around. Fold your hands. And bow your head and close your eyes. And this this was humility, and it was focus on the Lord. But you know what? Sometimes, sometimes during worship or, or maybe even when I'm up here and I'm praying, I'll peek and I will see some of you looking out our high barn windows behind me. And you're not doing it because you think you might catch God peeking in. Why, why, why are you, why, what is that? Wait, there are some, okay, some nice trees out there and a little bit of blue sky, which is, you know, wonderful in Washington. Why are you looking up and out why are you taking that posture? You know why? Because we look upward as our spirits look beyond this world. There's there's something in that posture. That's what Jesus is doing. He lifts up his eyes and begins to pray. Now he's just been teaching the apostles. He's just been talking with the apostles and all of a sudden without a break, in fact, Jesus didn't have the break of Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven he said. He just started praying. He didn't say, "Let us pray." Let us bow. He just started praying. He's talking to the disciples and then he just starts talking to God because that's how real prayer is. That's how real Jesus was. This was not religion for him. This was his father who he knew heard him and was present with him even as he was present himself with the disciples. So so in the Bible, you don't see closed eyes and folded hands. Show me. Find me a place that says, Fold your hands and close your eyes when you pray. There's nowhere that specifically says that. You know what we do see? We see hands lifted up. Now, I don't know how. I don't know if it was like this, if it was like this, if it was like this. You know, I mean, there's all those different ways that, that we worship and, and praise and all that stuff. I don't know specifically, but there's something to lifting up your hands as though reaching to the Father. You ever feel like that when you're praying? You just want to go, God, help me here. I can't do this without you other times you may actually be like lord all i have belongs to you so there are different ways and it doesn't matter that there's not a script to doing this right but psalm 134 says lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the lord first timothy chapter 2 verse 8 paul says to timothy therefore i want the men Specifically, he calls out the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Why didn't he say the women? Because they don't have any problem praying. It's us guys who need to pray more. And I'm kidding, you, you ladies, you need to pray more too. But, but we really, the male in us needs to get called out because we're too DIY. We are way too do it yourself, make it happen. We can fix it. And if we can't, we just feel Broken. We lift up and we say, Father, I can't, I I, I need you. I need you to do this. But hands lifted up can be showy, right? Isaiah chapter one, verse 15, the Lord said, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. (laughs) Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why, Lord? Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. None of that sounds like going to church. It all sounds like active spiritual life. It's all very real. And so we also see humble faces in scripture, hands lifted up, but it can be showy. Make sure that you know, you're not trying to show off but we see humble faces bowed all the way down to the ground. Ezra chapter 10, verse one, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept bitterly. He is flat out on the ground. That's to prostrate yourself. Face down, arms out, laying down on the ground. He is weeping. He is humble. He's making confession. He is a broken man for his broken people. So whether it's flat out or bowing down or kneeling or hands raised or eyes lifted up, the issue is the attitude of the heart. Jesus looks up to his father because he is looking beyond the world, not because he thinks his father's gonna be in the near atmosphere or outer space. He's looking up and he's doing this physically, which reflects what's going on spiritually in his heart. He is lifting up his eyes, to look beyond where he is in that moment. And note this, the first words out of his mouth are the last time he says, the hour has come. He said this several times. Actually, he said early on in John chapter two, my hour is not yet here. He said to Mary, woman, why do you bother me? My hour is not yet. This is not the time. But now Jesus says, father, the hour has come Now, the most recent time, he said, that was in John chapter 12. Do you remember when the Greeks came to him and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus? And he responded saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up. He realized because these Gentiles, these outsiders were coming to him now, and this is the last week of his life, the crucifixion is imminent. But here as he praises, Father, and I love that he always refers to God as Father. Father, pater in the Greek, Abba in the Hebrew. Father, he says, the hour has come. You could say, the timing is perfect. The point has been reached. And Jesus is praying this in real time. Galatians chapter four, verse four tells us, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the Jewish law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says he came at the perfect time, the fullness of time. And he's speaking of the entrance of Jesus into the world, but we see here at the end of Jesus' earthly life, there is the fullness of pregnant time about ready to give birth to salvation. Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. By the way, we're very close to that time when the Father will say, Son, the hour has come. Matthew 24, 36, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone, Jesus says. And Jesus at that time divested himself of the knowledge of his second coming, of when that would happen. He said only the Father knows the precise date and time. But I will remind you, everything has happened that has to happen. Everything that prophecy says, everything the Bible said must first take place, it's all taken place. There is nothing left to happen before Jesus comes. Which is why you hear me all the time, and I know it freaks some people out, but you hear me say, hey, we're gonna study this next week if we're here. We're gonna be looking at this next month, you know, Lord willing, you know, if we're here or not, I don't know. People say, wow, Rick, you, in fact, I was told this today. While we are on the Israel trip, there was someone on the trip who who heard me make a comment about, you know, if we're here by the end of the trip and and we haven't already gone on home and that that really freaked this person out. I'm not putting a time on it. I'm not setting it. Just because I say it doesn't mean it's gonna happen immediately. But I can tell you, we have been called to live imminently and to be ready any moment. Because he he may be here before I'm done with John 17. That's entirely possible. I don't even know where I am. Oh, so the son of man, no one knows, but the father knows. And he's going to turn to the son and say, the hour has come. But when Jesus says this, father, the hour has come. I know you're sitting there going, we're halfway through verse one. When he says, father, the hour has come. Please hear me. This is so important in our praying. This is not resignation. It's glorification. Jesus isn't speaking as one who's giving up resigning himself he's about to die. Father, the hour's come. He doesn't declare God's appointed hour as an excuse for fatalistic determinism. I guess that's it, I'm done. They're gonna crucify me in the morning. It's over. He's not resigned. Jesus, when he says, Father, the hour has come, is positioning himself in obedience. He's praying for the accomplishment of God's will. The hour has come. I'm here, I'm now, this is what we planned. The hour has come. He knows God's will is gonna be accomplished, but he prays it anyway. And that's what I want you to get. He knows God's gonna do it, and yet he prays it. Colossians 4, verse 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devote yourselves to prayer, pray all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, Carson, the, the, uh, the scholar that I've, I've been reading on this, great quote. He said, as so often in Scripture, emphasis on God's sovereignty, that is on God doing what he's going to do, functions as an incentive to prayer, not as disincentive. You understand what that means? That's really huge. Because some people will resign and say, if God knows anyway, why pray? They are disincentivized to pray because God already knows. He's already gonna do it. That's the one, you know, one of actually many concerns I have with Calvinism is the the idea that this is all predetermined. You can't do anything about it. Well, then why even pray? We don't pray to change God, C.S. Lewis said. We pray to change us. I pray to change me. I pray to be aligned with what I know he's going to do. And prayer is that. It's just aligning yourself with God's will. Yeah, he knows what he's gonna do and he's gonna do it. But you come alongside and you align with him. And Jesus prays now for the role that he is about to play in God's will. It's not selfish. It's not a self-centered prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now listen, to the word glorify here. This is doxadzo in the Greek. Doxadzo, which usually means praise or honor. If, if, if we see, uh, say, I exalt you like we just sang or if I say glory to God in the highest, or, or if I sing any you know, glorification song, God, I glorify you. If I say that or, or sing that, what I mean and what the word usually means is praise or honor. I honor you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. I glorify you. But it also means to clothe in splendor. And when Jesus says it here, that's what he means. How do you know? Because that's something only God can do. You can't pray, God, clothe yourself in splendor. You got nothing in there. But but Jesus can say, Father, clothe yourself in splendor and clothe your son in splendor. He can pray that because it's something he can do. It's something God does. Well, how do you know that's what he means? Well, if you skip all the way down to verse five, listen to this. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What's he talking about? When he was clothed in splendor. So in verse one, when he says, glorify your son, he's talking about getting dressed. He's talking about being clothed in the splendor that he had with God before he came to the earth, which is awesome. Glorify your son that the son may also glorify you. The hour has come, the sacrifice is imminent, but it is also just about time for Jesus to be reclothed in the splendor that he had before, the shared glory of God the Father. Now, Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. That's pretty absolute. I will not give my glory to another, God says. And here Jesus prays, glorify me, that I may glorify you. How could he pray something like that? It it, would be anathema, it'd be cursed, it'd be blasphemy. Or as Jake would say, blasphemy. (laughs) Blasphemy. And yet Jesus can pray that because what has John been telling us all along? What has Jesus said over and over throughout this gospel? I am. I am. God says, I will not give my glory to another, that is to another of a different kind, but to another of the same kind, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of the same kind. The glorious splendor of God is shared in that triune Godhead. Now, one more thing to notice, notice the connection between, in these first opening verses of glorification, there's a, he says glory, he says authority, he says eternal life. The connection between the glory of God, the authority of God, and our eternal life, if you look at verse two, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus was given the authority to save your life and to save mine. And I didn't deserve it and neither did you, but he was given authority to save. How might Jesus have misused that authority? I mean, think for a moment, he was given all authority, you know, given authority by God to come to earth and to act as God because he is God, but to act on God's behalf, about all the things that the father wanted to see accomplished. He was given this authority and Jesus could have leapt off the pinnacle of the temple by that authority. Or or he could have ridden high on the praises of the people. Or he could have called 12 legions of angels by that authority. He had authority over all flesh and yet for the sake of all flesh, what did he do? He did not usurp the ruler of this world. Try and wrap your brain around that. Jesus did not use his ultimate authority to undermine the authority of the devil. He allowed Satan to run, ultimately resulting in his crucifixion by his authority. And what's beautiful about John, you're gonna see this more and more in the coming weeks, Lord willing, you're gonna see this Jesus, as we come to the end of the gospel of John, is in complete control of everything that's happening. He has complete authority over the crucifixion, over the trials, everything. He is he is working the pieces, as it were, in full submission to God, allowing the ruler of this world, Satan, to run rampant. That's stunning. Instead of blasting Satan off of the mountain or formally firing him at the temple, which is probably what I would have done, Jesus, in his authority, disarmed the devil at the cross and so doing provided our eternal life. First John chapter five, verse 20, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God, who? Jesus. And this is eternal life. Life. So the glorification and the authority of God, both father and son, leads to eternal life, provides our eternal life. And by the way, just to totally bend your brains, this has huge heavenly implications. Turn over to Ephesians chapter three real quickly. Ephesians chapter three. And you might wanna keep a finger there between Ephesians two and three because we're gonna go back there in just a second. I love this. And I know I've shared this before, and some of you are gonna go, oh yeah, yeah, Rick, you've told us that. I, I just, I can't get enough of this. This is so awesome, and it really puts us in position in this whole glorious plan of God that really is about his glory, right? The glorification of God. That's the whole point of the whole thing. But listen to this, Ephesians chapter three, verse eight. Paul is writing, and he says, to me, the very least of all the saints, I'm the lowest class Christian. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places that the whole work of grace in you, in me, in this world, the whole saving of people, ultimately is about glorifying God and teaching the heavenly authorities, angels, principalities, rulers in the heavenly places, teaching them what grace is, helping them understand the glory of God and what that really means, the glory yielding the authority which brings the grace of our salvation. And we are part of this wonderful thing. We get to be saved. But your salvation's not the point. His glory is the point. But we're caught up in his glory and we get to be saved and be with him. But in all this, there, you're gonna see, you, you will find this. There are heavenly beings who even right now are going, oh, oh, okay. I've heard about his grace for eternity, but now I, I get this. And that's what God is up to. The glorification of God. Listen, the glorification of God is at the heart of this prayer. So though we, we cover it quickly in five verses, even as we continue on, Jesus is always bringing glory to the Father. He is always praying the glory of God. His glory, his authority, and eternal life are the basis of now part two. And let's get a little bit into this, the sanctification of of his disciples. Glorification of God is how he begins and then moves into the sanctification of the disciples. Verse 6 I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. And he's talking about the 11 guys who were there with him. Judas is on his way. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jesus manifested the name. Of God. Name in the Bible means the nature, the character, the worth, the value. Names in the scriptures are a whole lot more important than they are to us. You know, what's that guy's name? Jack. Just give him Jack. Okay, good. He's Jack. I, it's interesting. I love, I've, I've noticed this with a lot of, of younger families. I'm hearing more and more names being given that have some meaning to them, some biblical meaning, names like Ezra. <laughs> but it, that's very cool but in the bible the name spoke of the nature of the person and oftentimes related very interestingly to the type of person they became by the name but the name of god is the authority of god it is the nature of god and jesus says i manifested your name to them what does that mean i manifested the, the word in the greek is a very simple street level greek word phaneroo. i fanerooed your nature to them. It means to reveal something unknown. It's also used to say to cause to shine. I shined a light on your nature. That's what he just said. I shined a light on your nature to them. And we've seen this manifestation throughout the gospel, right? We've seen over and over Jesus revealing the nature of God in his life and in his ministry. This is God. And Jesus still manifests God to us. To this day, and the reason I say that is because Faneroo, and I don't wanna lose you here, but this is, this is really cool. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me, but he still does it today. How do I know he still does it today? Because the word phaneroo, the word manifested here <laughs> in the Greek, it's in the aorist tense, which means past, present, and future. I have manifested your name. I am manifesting your name. I will manifest your name. That's what he's saying. I will shine a light. I have shined a light on your name. I am shining a light right now on your name. And I'll continue to shine a light on your name, Lord, Father, to my people. I wonder if when John remembered Jesus praying this and began to write it, if that didn't become the impetus of this gospel. Oh yeah. As he's writing, remembering the prayer, Jesus prayed that he manifested the name of God to us and that's the whole gospel, is the manifestation of God in Jesus Christ, shining a light on who God is. Remember Isaiah 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And yet Jesus lets us in on how God thinks, on what God does, on what matters to God. Jesus manifested God when he came to walk among us in the flesh. That was the point of his life, to show us God. John 1.18, John wrote, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he's explained him. And all his followers, even to this day, believe this. But what an amazing thing he says to these disciples. I've manifested your name to them. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And note this, and they have kept your word. They have kept your word. He's praying about the disciples, their sanctification. He says, they have kept your word. Hey, listen, 11 of them are about to scatter like frightened sheep. One is on his way to betray Jesus. And he says, and they have kept your word? Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Zechariah, Chapter 13, verse seven, prophesied. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus was struck and all the disciples fled. These are the guys who are about to leave him. Peter, who is about to deny him. Judas, who is in the process of betraying him. And Jesus says, (laughs) and they've kept your word. Now, he's not talking about Judas there, I can tell you. But the rest of them didn't fare a whole lot better. There's an old quote that I love. And it comes from... uh, De Cervantes' Don Quixote, where he says, Don Quixote says, when life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness really lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. Too much sanity may be madness. And maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. And Jesus sees his apostles, and by the way, sees us as we should be. Not as we are. If he saw me as, if he looked at me and considered me as I am, I'd be in big trouble. He doesn't see me as I am. He sees me as I will be. He sees the apostles right here. They've kept your word. No, they haven't, Lord. Yes, they will, he says. (laughs) Yes, they will. So I'm saying they have, because they will, and because he knows it. Jesus saw the 11 not as they were, but as they would be keepers of the word. And truly they were. They became keepers of the word. By faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the paracleton that we've been talking about on Sundays, they would indeed keep God's word. The word keep there, it's preserve. It's hold fast. They have kept your word. He puts it like like past tense, But but it's not. It's, It's in truth what they are going to do, but he sees it as a done deal. And same with you by faith, same with me. In fact, back in Ephesians chapter two, Jesus has this exact same confidence in you and in me. He would say of you and say of me, they kept my word. While we're here struggling to keep it. He says they've kept it. Ephesians chapter two. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That's, that's how, how simple we were. We were dead in it. That's the, the level of our uh, patheticness, our wickedness, our evil. We were dead. But even though we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus I, remember i 've said this that he seated us with him in the heavenly places. We are not in the heavenly places, but as far as God, God is concerned, yes, you are you 're already there that 's how certain he is of the salvation and the grace that he's given us, it's actually, there's a word for it, it's a proleptic phrase. A proleptic phrase is a phrase that is so absolutely certain it is spoken as though it's already happened. So back in Jesus' prayer, when he says, they have kept your word, he is so absolutely certain that they're gonna keep his word that he says it as though it's already done. And here we are 2,000 years later reading this word because they kept his word. Aren't you thankful that Jesus sees you, not as you are, but as you are in him? What a difference. Washed, sanctified, redeemed, holy, righteous, as I will be, is as he sees me. Fellow disciples, you might be as panicky and skittish as sheep. You might feel like you're gonna flee any moment, or maybe you have recently, Don't let the devil pull the wool over your eyes. Don't let him ram accusations down your throat. I'm just gonna keep using puns until one of you laughs. It's all sheer lies. Don't let the devil do that. Jesus sees you and he sees me already seated on high. Saints who have kept his word by faith in his grace. That is the position of a follower of Jesus It is nothing I've done. It is no righteousness in and of myself. It is the grace of God who sees me as saved. I don't always see myself that way, but he does. Revelation 3.10, Jesus says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I'm gonna keep you from that. Why? Because you kept my word. Just keep my word. Jude 24 says, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. That's what God does. Jesus keeps praying in verse seven. Now they, talking about the disciples, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me, wow. They had that much going for them at least because yeah, they're about to flee and yeah, over the course of Jesus' ministry, there are a lot of flubs, there are a lot of confusions, there's arguing over who's the greatest and, and, and there's Peter shooting off his mouth and there's all these different things that happen and, and even here at you know the verge of the crucifixion, they're gonna flee, it's, it's embarrassing, but you know what? Jesus says this, so it has to be true. They received the words that he gave them, and they understood this much, that Jesus came forth from God, and that God sent him. They believed what they could, and they did believe. I think that's awesome. Carson also says, they may not have understood that their Messiah had to die and rise again, they may not have, uh, have grasped how he was to embrace and fulfill in his own person the Old Testament motifs of kingship and sacrifice and priesthood and the suffering servant, but they had come to a deep conviction that Jesus had been sent by God and all that he taught was God's truth. And Jesus declares here as he's praying for these disciples, they believe, Lord, not like they will, but they believe you sent me and that I came from you. Another way to put this is that the seeds that the sower had planted had already taken root in good soil, in the soil of their hearts. It was already embedded. They were not gonna show it yet, but 50 days later, Pentecost, the church, and all the mission work that took place after that as the apostles went out into the world, Jesus' words took root. And I love that. Because the reality is, I can mess up all kinds of teaching, but I can know if we're reading the scriptures together, Jesus' words take root. They get hold of us, they make us think, and they bear fruit ultimately. Isaiah 55, verse 10 says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return from there without watering the earth, making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's the word, it implants, it begins to germinate and it's taken root in the apostles here. Verse nine, I ask, he says, on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. What is Jesus saying here? Again, he's just praying, right? He's just praying real and genuine to the Father. But as we break this down, what's he saying? All things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. What things? All things. The word all things, it's two words in English. It's one word in the Greek. It's, it's panta. From the word pas, pas in the Greek, which means everything. It's like a big global word, everything. Colossians chapter one, verse 16 tells us, For by him all things were created, Jesus, both in heaven and on the earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. It's that same word. It's everything. It's a broad word. And it's inclusive of everything shared between God the Father and God the Son. But, but, the context of Jesus saying this narrows down to those whom you have given me. You've given, we, you know, we have all things, but he says, I ask on their behalf. Well, yeah, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified on them. We have everything, but I'm asking specifically for this. I'm asking specifically for them. What are you trying to say, Rick? If you belong to God, you belong to Jesus. For when you made that first statement of faith, God gave you to Jesus. Can you wrap your brain around that one? God gave you to Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 for those whom he foreknew he knew what you were going to choose he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son to look like, to be like Jesus we have all things but you have given them to me but listen verse 9 single handedly unravels the concept of universalism you know what I'm talking about Universalism. Everybody's just gonna be saved. All rivers lead to the sea. All roads lead to the same place. It doesn't matter what you believe, who you believe, where you believe, any of that, doesn't matter. It's all gonna end up in the same place together. And what Jesus says in verse nine removes that. He says, listen again, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. He's specific. The world, cosmos there, used 173 times in the New Testament, 135 times in John's gospel, 18 times in this prayer. And it's used in almost every situation as a contrast. The world versus heaven, the world versus Jesus, the world versus his people. And he says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. If universalism was possible, if everyone was just gonna end up in heaven and saved and it's all a good thing and everything's fine, Jesus would not have said, I don't ask on behalf of the world. He wouldn't have narrowed it to his followers. He specifically states here at the pivotal hinge of the ages that he is not praying for non believers. Now, he's, he's not sitting in judgment of non believers. No, what he's praying for is his disciples will be prepared and ready to go out to non believers so they could be disciples too and be saved. So his heart is for salvation for everyone. I've said this many times, it is universal invitation. It's not universal salvation. Everyone is invited. Anyone is invited to come to Jesus, but not everybody will. He prays in verse nine, those you have given me. But what does he pray? Note that he says, I ask on their behalf. He's praying something for them. What, What is it that he asks? Verse 11, and this is the last verse we're gonna do. I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, here it is, keep them in your name which you have given me, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we, even as we are. What's he praying? Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name, Lord. Remember this. Name is nature in the Bible. And Jesus here prays for these disciples, keep them in your name. But this can have two different meanings to it. Because the word in, as we translate in in the English, keep them in your name, it can also mean by. Keep them in your name, keep them by your name, and those are two different things. Especially when you're thinking biblically. Keep them by your name would be more like saying, keep them protected by the power of your name keep them safe. Psalm 20 verse 1, may the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. Keep them by your name. Or Proverbs 18:10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Keep them by your name, by the power of your name. Keep them, Lord. Or and I think probably more likely, the translation's really good, keep them in your name. That is Secured to adhere to God's character. Think about being in something. I'm gonna talk about this more on Sunday. You are in the character of God. Jesus prays, keep them in your name, keep them in your nature, keep them connected to you. Like Paul said in Ephesians 4:24, put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is not something you can do. It's something Jesus prayed that God would do for you. Keep you in his name. Or 1 Peter 1:15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy. Why? Because you'll work hard at it. No, you shall be holy because I am holy. And Jesus says, keep them in your name. By the power of your name, keep them in the holiness of who you are. And that's as far as we're gonna go tonight. And there's so much more to come. But I wanna leave you with this. I want you to note this. Jesus is on the tether between this world and heaven. He's on the tether. What do you mean? I I, I shared this uh, uh, two or three weeks ago. There's that space show where there's a long spaceship and it has this thing called the tether holding on and and the ship is here, but there's another ship over there and and, and it's kind of the way they handle gravity as they're flying to Mars. Anyway, the tether is that which connects and Jesus is already there. Listen to what he said again, verse 11. I am no longer in the world. Um, Jesus... I've been on the Mount of Olives and you are on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is in the world. I'm no longer in the world, Jesus prays on the night of his betrayal as he stands on solid ground. I'm no longer in the world. You know what you could say? Jesus has left the building. <laughs> he's done. He's not looking back. He has, he's already gone. Jesus has already gone. Like the old Eagle song, I'm already gone. Of course, that was talking about breaking up, and Jesus isn't breaking up here. I'm already gone. I am no longer in the world. So listen to me. When you pray, pray like Jesus. Think about what we've talked about. Pray lifting up your eyes to heaven. Just be straight and real with God. Don't make up stuff. Don't try to look holy. Don't try to be super spiritual. Just talk to God like you would talk to each other. Pray, lifting up your eyes to heaven. And by the way, it helps if you're not looking at yourself. Mm-hmm. Secondly, pray for the glory of God. When you pray for God to be glorified, it removes that social embarrassment of not praying correctly. Because it doesn't matter if you flub in your words, you're not the point. Pray God is glorified. So thirdly, pray confidently. Not resigned, oh, woe is me, Lord, but aligned with God's will. Praying confidence that everything he said in this book, he's gonna do. Because everything he said in this book that he was going to do in Jesus' first coming, he did. And we've talked about those things, and I can show you that, and it is mind-blowing how prophecy proves this book. Everything that Jesus, that was said of Jesus' first coming, he did. Pray with the confidence that he's gonna do it again because he said he would. Fourthly, pray belonging to the Father. He has given you to the Son. Pray as one who belongs to Jesus. When I go to the Father in prayer, you know who I stand behind? Jesus. I'm gonna go strolling all in there like, hey God, I think I got it together enough today to talk to you. Zap, I'd be done. I go right behind Jesus and I go, hey Jesus, tell him I said this. (laughs) Pray belonging to the Father and the Son. And finally, man, pray like you've left the building. Like there's no going back. I got a home. I have a future. I have a life, and it's so much better than this one. Pray that way, believing and knowing that you're home free. You're already gone. And Father, we pray this tonight, just that you will help us with our prayers. I've been praying this a lot over the last week for myself, for my friends, for our fellowship, that you'll just help us to talk to you and trust that you're listening to us, that you'll help us to be genuine with you, even as we so easily are with each other. Help us to pray that way. And I ask, Lord, that as we pour over the the amazing words of Jesus' prayer, Tonight and next week, as we think through these things, help us to pray like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.